Amen, amen. Thank you, James Hemstead and all you others. Y'all give it up for them once again as they head back to their seats. And um, so grateful for them. They sang all three services this morning, so we're blessed to have them helping lead us in worship. Well, let me ask you guys, how many of y'all have actually seen the movie Noah so far in the theaters? Would you slip your hands up real quick? We'll see how many... Uh, pagans we got in our church. God bless all of you for being here. I'm just kidding. You know, uh, it's official now. Noah's like a box office hit. They've grossed in only a few weekends $100 million. And uh, Krista and I, my wife, had the opportunity a few weeks ago on a date night. I knew I was going to be kind of moving in the direction of Noah. So when the movie came out, I was pretty excited. So that's where we went on our date that particular night. And uh, I'll tell you this much, all right, about the movie Noah. They did get his name right and there was a flood, all right? So they nailed it in those two departments. But other than that, they created a whole lot of extra plot lines that aren't actually found in the scripture. So what we're gonna do over the next few weeks is actually study the real story of Noah. Are y'all down with that? Let's figure out what the real story is, right? Me too. So if you got your Bible, Genesis chapter six, as you open it up, we're gonna look at verses one through 12 this morning. And I'll tell you, as I studied this text of scripture, there were three images that actually came to my mind. And those three images are on the screen for you now. There's one that is the keep out image. It's the crossbones image. The very first time that I had the opportunity to see those particular signs is when I crossed over the Thailand border into Cambodia. And everywhere I looked, there were these signs that looked just like this. And they were screaming to us, keep out. Now, I didn't speak their language, but I knew enough that when I saw that sign, not going near it. Y'all with me? And so that was the keep out. Now, I had that image in my mind, but also had the image of tug of war. You guys probably remember playing that in grammar school. We'll talk about that further in just a few moments. And then the third image that came to my mind were the image of sandals. Now, we're going to look at that today as well. But I want you to know this, okay? Just so everybody knows, summer's coming up, and a lot of people are starting to wear sandals now. If you wear sandals, you are not allowed to wear socks with your sandals, all right? That's against the rules as a fashion faux pas. And if you do, please don't tell them you go to Concord, okay? That will uh, mess up our cool factor here, okay? Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as we begin to look at the real story of Noah. The Bible says, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. And those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Let's bow together. Father, we are so thankful for our opportunity this morning to study the Scripture together. 
I pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak clearly through the message and that you would uh, do what you desire to do in each and every single heart. We thank you. We have the great privilege of gathering together to worship freely. And we trust that you'll speak in a supernatural fashion. In Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said amen. So you can be seated this morning. So the first image that came to my mind was this keep out image. In fact, it was uh, something that teaches us about the culture of the book of Genesis in chapter 6. The culture before the flood. It was a keep God out kind of culture. Matter of fact, as you study uh, the history of the book of Genesis, you will find that the culture was darker in Genesis chapter 6 than ever before. It was after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then as you continue to go through, you find that they continue to push away from the Lord. They wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. So look with me, if you will, again, at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, has been a passage in the scripture that has caused great difficulty for biblical interpreters over the years. Now I studied this, there are tons of different interpretations of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But there are only two that I feel like kind of rise to the cream of the crop. Okay, so I'm going to give you the two interpretations. You choose whichever one you want to run with, but don't run with any of the others. They're crazy, all right? So here's one interpretation. One interpretation is that individuals look at the terminology sons of God and say that those sons of God represent those in the lineage of Seth. Now we're going to drop the plow here this morning, so you got to stick with me. And they say that those from the line of Seth were Sethites. And the Sethites came and they actually saw the daughters of men who were from the line of Cain. And the daughters of men who were from the line of Cain were not individuals who are walking with the Lord like the Sethites were. However, those of Seth's lineage were driven by their own lust and desires. And as a result of that, they began to intermarry with the daughters of Cain. And so they will begin to take all of these daughters to themselves. They did not go to them and marry them because they were affiliated the same. That is, they did not go out looking for those who loved God like they did and married them. Instead, they went out driven by their own affections. And as a result, they took these particular women to themselves. And then they began to have children. And there was intermarriage going on. And what you'll find whenever you study commentaries is that some people believe that that's exactly what took place. And some of them even stressed that during these particular days, polygamy became a very popular thing in the culture. Polygamy is having more than one wife. I'm satisfied with one. Y'all all right with that? Say amen. Uh, I, that, man, that was a great place for you to say amen if your wife's with you, all right? Uh, let me say that again and you get a running start, all right? I'm satisfied with one wife. <laughs> some of you still are in trouble, all right? But that was the case of what some people believe was going on in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, there's a second interpretation that holds, I feel, greater weight with it. Whenever you speak of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, 1 and 2, you automatically, when studying that term, are rushed to Job chapter 1, where the Bible talks about the sons of God and Satan presenting themselves before God. So in Job chapter 1, what you have are the sons of God and Satan together as one cohesive unit. So the concept here is that many believe sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, 1 and 2 actually represent fallen angels who rushed headlong after Satan when Satan was kicked out of heaven for his own pride. 
And these particular demons now, who are fallen angels on the earth, are now beginning to take women to themselves and be married. Now listen closely. Whenever you read the New Testament, Jesus says that angels cannot marry. So we kind of have somewhat of an issue here whenever we're studying the text. If angels can't marry, how are they marrying the daughters of men? Here's how it would have happened. Those fallen angels would have actually taken possession. They would have demon-possessed men. And then they would have ran and grabbed all of these women to themselves. Now what's interesting is whenever we look at the motive, why in the world would fallen angels do such a thing? Well, the men, if you run with the Seth lineage here, these men were driven by their affections. But if you run with this second interpretation, what would drive the demons to do such a thing really was a diabolical plot to get rid of all of the virgins on the world's landscape. Now the question is, why do they want to get rid of all the virgins? Here's the reason why. Are y'all with me say yeah? The reason why is because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God made a promise to Satan who is the devil. God promised the devil, and this is my paraphrase, here's what he says, I'm promising you this, devil. From the seed of a woman, a man is going to come who is going to crush your head. Don't you think about that just a moment. From the seed of a woman, a man is going to come who is going to crush your head. Satan knew this, all the demons knew this as well. They are ignorant, but not stupid. Uh, demons understand that people are not born from the seed of a woman. They're born from the seed of a man. A little biology. <laughs> so in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, whenever God makes a promise to the devil that from the seed of a woman, a person is going to come who's going to crush your head, he is making a promise that there will be a virgin birth that will produce someone who will crush your head, devil. First promise of the virgin birth is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The fallen angels, the demons, they knew this. So in order to keep God out, because that was their culture, in order to keep God out, they had to make sure there were no virgins on the earth because if there's no virgins on the earth, then there can't come a redeemer who would crush their head. And so many people see this as a diabolical plot to actually rid the earth of the opportunity for God to set down to the earth in flesh. Now, are y'all still with me? Say yes. Look at me eyeball to eyeball. Here's the deal. Regardless of which interpretation you roll out to, I don't care. But the bottom line is this. It was the worst the earth had ever been before. And God makes that extremely plain. Now, what happens when these sons of God and daughters of men get together is that they begin to have birth uh, of children. And they almost give birth to this entirely new race called the Nephilim. So if you'll look with me in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they were bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So now you've got to look, okay? If you watch the movie, and I, I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert here on the movie Noah, all right? If you watch the movie, you'll actually see a depiction of fallen angels leaving heaven and coming to the earth. Now, the wild thing about the movie is that these fallen angels hit the earth, and then they stand back up as these giant people made out of rocks with like five hands. And as you look at it, they really look like transformers. You know what I'm saying? I was thinking, what? are we in the wrong theater? What just happened here? I mean, <laughs> anyway. 
It's pretty wild. Now, that's not the case. That was a crazy interpretation, all right? That's not the case. But when they did have children, they created a race of people that some actually believed were half divine and half human. And so you had in this particular culture, in this time, individuals who were bowing down to these particular people who had been born, and they were putting them up on a pedestal, making them aristocrats and great leaders in the land, in what we would call governing authorities. And they would worship them. These Nephilim were men of great might. These Nephilim were men of renown. So everybody knew about them. Now look at me eyeball to eyeball, okay, here it is. Whenever we study the culture of Genesis chapter 6, we have to begin to ask the question, are there some similarities in our current culture? They were a crossbones culture, keep God out. Do we live in a culture like that? And specifically, do we live in a culture like that in America where we want to keep God out? Uh, I believe we are seeing the rise of that right in front of our eyes every single week. Last weekend, you and I, we were hanging out here for Easter celebration. If you weren't here, I'm sure you were somebody else at another church. But we were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Up in Wisconsin, there was a, a, a stage put together in the Capitol to reflect the resurrection. And so they put crosses there. They put some other literature out there, including some anti-abortion literature. Well, there was a group known as the Freedom From Religions Activity and Foundation. They saw the Christians put something up, and they came in with their own sign, and they placed it right next to this particular staging. So y'all look at this. We got a picture of this. This is the picture. Nobody died for our sins. Jesus Christ is a myth. Freedom from Religion Foundation. Now this is right up in Wisconsin. This is in America, right? The, the land that's been founded on Christian principles. But what are we living in now? We're living in a land where this right here is extremely popular. People want to get rid of the Lord. Now, I did some study on that foundation and saw some other signs that they have. This is one of their most popular ones. But that same sign was used on one occasion where they put quotes around sin. Jesus did not die for your sin. Now, whenever you see that and there are quotes around sin, what they're trying to say is that sin ain't even real. They're quoting it as something that does not exist. It's really the great desire of many secular humanists in our particular culture to get rid of any absolute morals, any truth whatsoever. We're living in a post-postmodern culture, but we still live in an era where people are saying, that might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. That might be right for you, but it's not right for me. Don't press your beliefs on top of me. Now, I want you to think about this. Are y'all with me say yes? If a culture gets rid of moral absolutes, that which is right, that which was wrong, what would motivate them to get rid of that? Here's the motivation. It's a demonic motivation. The reason they would want to get rid of this idea of moral truth is because if moral truth doesn't exist, if there are no moral laws, then there is no moral law giver. So in all for efforts to push God out, they're like, we don't even believe in sin. Now, check it out. Keep following the train. If they reject sin, they're trying their hardest to reject a God that exists. And the reason they don't want God to exist is because if God does exist and he does have moral laws, we're in trouble. So in order to evade punishment or judgment, 
they disregard it altogether. That's the culture we live in. That right there is the pervading culture in our particular areas. Secular humanists not only have pushed these particular signs uh, all over the place, but you probably heard about this only a couple of weeks ago. There is a secular humanist group that has linked up with an atheist family, and they are suing the New Jersey school system because their son had to say the pledge to the flag and say, under God. And they so desire their son not to have to say, under God, because they say God doesn't exist, that they're getting sued. It's amazing, isn't it? What's the deal there? It's a keep God out culture. It's a crossbone culture. Let's get rid of that. And then as we study Genesis chapter 6, we see violence says erupted on the earth like never before. Uh, you would not have wanted to live in these times. But if you think about violence in our culture, is it not increasing? In Chicago, in an amount of two weeks last month, two weeks, 38 shootings, 13 fatalities in one city in our culture. So, so what is the deal here? It's individuals who want to live as if God doesn't exist. They want to keep God out of the culture. And then if you think about men of renown in this text who are pushing and propagating that kind of culture, think about the men of renown, not only in America, but all over the globe. And they are pushing God out. They want nothing to do with Christ. That's where we live. Now, as we continue to look at this text of Scripture, we not only see this keep God out culture, but I want you to notice verse 5. What we're going to see here together is that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And we'll jump back on that verse in just a moment. But here's what I want you to see. The very first image is the crossbones. Keep God out. Second image is the image of the tug of war. All right, Pulling of the rope. And I want you to see kind of where this uh, finds itself. Look in verse 3 in your Bible. The scripture says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So here God makes the response that he will not continue forever to engage in a struggle with humanity. One commentator says it this way. Essentially, God declares that his long-suffering, his patience with sinful humanity has come to an end and he will no longer suspend judgment. So God in this text is saying that in 120 years, the flood is going to come. His judgment is actually going to be released upon the world. Now, when you look at that tightrope, what I want you to think is this. God will eventually let go of the rope. Now, you guys remember playing this game, right? Grammar school was kind of neat. Now, if you were like the real deal on tug of war, uh, you guys would have a team, and in between your team and the other team would be a big mud pit, right? And if you pulled hard enough, the others fell into the mud, and then you were the victors, okay? So the goal was to not get what on you? Somebody say it out loud. Yeah, mud. So let's stay away from the mud. Now, carry the same image for just a moment and think about God in heaven holding one end of the rope. Now, I'm going to tell you, God doesn't have to pull. <laughs> Y'all can't handle it if he pulls. Y'all with me? God's holding the rope. And then if you can picture humanity this way, humanity has all of their hands on the rope, and they are pulling away from God. We want nothing to do with you. We want to get away from you. Right? That's the pull. 
Now, the amazing thing is between God and humanity is not a mud pit. The amazing thing is that on the other side of humanity is hell. And so they are pulling away, and hell is on the other side, and it is only the grace of God that he don't just let go. You ever done that before, right? I've done this with my kids several times. I try to give them something to hold on to. I'm like, pull it hard as you can, hard as you can, and then I let go. You lose. You know what I mean? It's one of those fun games. You try it when you get home. This is the imagery, right? God is holding on to it, and he says, 120 years, and I'm letting go of this robe. Judgment is going to come. It reminded me as I was studying, too, like a child who wants to eat the whole bag of chocolate candy, and then the adult finally let him. He discovers after having his belly full, it wasn't the treat that he envisioned. These people are pulling away. I want to live without God. I want to live without God. I want to live. And then when God says, okay, and they fall into judgment, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Now, we read the text there in verse 5 about how the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Now, this is an amazing thought to me, right? So I'm studying this, and I'm thinking, all right, God is sovereign over all things. That means he's in control of all things. He knows all things. He has made all things. He's the creator of all things. So God makes humanity. How can he be sorry with what he made? How is it that he has this particular emotion going on in his life? And I will tell you, whenever you study emotions of God, oftentimes we use what are called anthropomorphisms. It comes from the uh, Greek word anthropos, which means man. We, we ascribe to God manly characteristics, all right? So that's the, the idea here. Uh, God is saying, I am sorry that I have made man, but how can a sovereign God be sorry that he made anything? Here, here's how he can be sorry. It's very simple. Because God created humanity with the free will to love him or reject him. And he is sorry that they are rejecting him. It's broken his heart. So if you can imagine again, God standing there with the end of the rope in one hand. And as he holds it and looks at humanity, there are tears welling up in his eyes. Because they are choosing to live separate from him. The amazing thing here, though, is that God determines the length of the struggle, not humanity. God determines how long he'll hold on to the rope, no one else. And in this text, he lets it go. Now, you can't study this text of Scripture without at least looking at verse 7, where the Bible says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Notice that term, blot out. He says, from man to animals, creeping things, the birds of the sky, I'm sorry that I have made them. Now, the word blot out there means to destroy them, to wipe them away. It's the same exact terminology used in 2 Kings 21, 13 to describe the wiping out of a dirty dish. So I want you to think about that for a moment, all right? Because when you leave here, uh, you're probably going to go somewhere and eat uh, lunch today. And maybe you'll be at your house and you'll be eating as soon as you're done. If you don't finish your entire meal, maybe you're like us. If there's not enough to save, you actually take that meal to the garbage can, and with a fork or a knife, you, you scrape it off into the trash, and then in our house it's just one turn, and then we're at the sink, 
and we turn the scalding hot water on and you place the, the, uh, the plate under the scalding hot water and it's washing all of the excess on there that you didn't get with the fork of the knife. And then you take the plate and you put it in a dishwasher and then the dishwasher slinging water all over the place with the idea of cleaning the dish. You got that imagery for a minute? God says, I'm going to blot out humanity from the earth. Think about how grand God is. That God would look at the earth and say, I'm going to pick you up like a dish. And I'm going to wipe humanity from the face of the earth. How, how is he going to do it? We know, right? Ultimately, how's he going to, he's going to turn the water on. And not only will it wipe humanity from the face of the earth, but it will also be a sign of cleansing, a sign of a new beginning, a new start. But that's what he's going to do. He makes that promise. And so as we look at this text of Scripture, uh, for me, I immediately rush to Romans chapter 1 because here's what you need to know this morning. In the Old Testament, God chose to drop the rope on all of humanity. But in the New Testament, the Bible teaches that God reserves the right to drop the rope on individuals. Romans chapter 1 speaks of the judgment of God upon individuals. It talks about how he will hand them over to a depraved mind. Now, I want you to think about this, all right? I want you to listen. I've got Romans 1 up here for you. I'm going to read it to you. This is out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. But I want you to listen and see if it doesn't describe the culture in which you and I live. So pay very close attention. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but they were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And it wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshipped the God they made instead of the God who made them. The God we bless, the God who blesses us. And oh yes, worse followed. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused. They abused and defiled one another. Women with women. Men with men. All lust and no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love. Godless and loveless wretches. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering, and cheating. Look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, bickering, fork-tongued God-bashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking their lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded, and it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face, and they don't even care. And worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. Hey, that's our culture. And here's really what I want you to hear this morning. Please pay very close attention. So if you've not been listening, you need to pay attention this morning. 
God is holding on to the rope right now, and some of you as individuals this morning are pulling away from the Lord. You want nothing to do with it. You're rejecting Him. You're moving in the opposite direction of the Lord. And listen, God reserves the right to drop the rope on you. To give you over to a depraved mind. In Romans chapter 1, when he says he's going to give them over to a depraved mind, that is one step in God's judgment towards those who reject him before they step off into hell. Now, don't come to me with any nonsense that God doesn't send people to hell. He loves everybody. God loves people so much, he, he gives them the opportunity to reject them. Y'all still with me? Say yes. It's amazing, isn't it? And there are people in church today who are pulling away from God. Hard as you can, man, but you can't get the Lord to move. But God's the one who decides how long you get to pull, not you. So we see it, don't we? We see it in the text. They lived in a keep God out culture. We see it in the text. They lived in a a culture that was playing tug of war with God, and God determines the length of the struggle. But then the third image that I give you today are the image of the sandals. And the sandals remind us that God honors those who walk with Him. God honors those who walk with Him. Now, look at verse 8 and 9. I love this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah's a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, the very first thing he says is that, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor literally is translated grace. Now, he didn't earn grace from God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Noah had faith in the Lord. And because he believed God, God credited to his spiritual bank account absolute grace and righteousness. It was a free gift. He didn't earn it. It was given to him. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, are y'all with me say yes? Because I love this right here. All right, let me get the rope back. Y'all seem to pay better attention when I'm holding something in my hand. Let me pull this bad boy up here. Here's what Noah did. All of humanity in Noah's time pulling away from the Lord. God is holding the rope. And here's what Noah did. Noah let go of the rope and walked over to where God was by faith. He trusted God. And that's the deal. God holds the rope and he invites you, hey, let go of the rope and come to me by faith. And when you come to me by faith, listen, you're not going to be on the wrong end when I let this thing go. So God holds the rope and says, you let go of the rope before I let go of the rope. Now, that's the call of salvation to you and I in the New Testament. How do we receive this? Here's what the Bible teaches. God actually allowed his son Jesus Christ to come to the earth and go to the cross and die for your sin and die for my sin. So Jesus bore the punishment for our sin in his own body. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And now the Bible says that if you let go of the rope, repent of your sin, and come to God by faith, you will be forgiven of all your sin, and check this out, and God will declare you righteous, give you a brand new life, give you freedom. And think about this, right? Noah, in the darkest of cultures, was shining like a diamond in the rough. God made him shine. 
I think about our uh, current situation, right? Could you imagine it like this? If God were still writing scripture today and he's not, but let's just pretend he is for a moment, all right? How about eyeball? If God were still writing scripture, he were writing about our culture. He would write about its degradation, its rejection of him. He would write about uh, the violence in the streets. He would write about all of the perversion that's going on. He'd write about it, write about it, write about it. And then he would come down to verse 8, let's say, in, in this particular writing, and he would say, but could he put your name? All of this darkness but Noah. All of this darkness but Levi. All of this darkness but your name. Would your name be there? And it's not like, oh, i got to get my name there. i got to be a good person now. No, no, no. You're, you're not saved by being a good person. The problem is you're bad, and God's the only one who can declare you good. You've got to come to Christ by faith. And when you come to Christ by faith, that's when God, by his grace, gives you his favor and his righteousness. Noah, I love the picture, Noah walked with God. Throughout the Old Testament, it's pretty awesome, actually. You find Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden. You find a guy named Enoch, he walked with God and he was not. And then you find Noah, and he walked with God. It's a picture of a relationship. He walked with the Lord. Look at the preacher eyeball to eyeball. Are you walking with the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Now, backing everything up, you got the three images, right? You got the crossbones, got the rope, you've also got the sandals. And reality is every person in here falls into one of those categories. Look at this preacher, eyeball to eyeball, right here. Some of you are living in absolute rebellion to God. Keep him out of my life. Don't want anything to do with him. Push him away. Some of you are holding the rope and you're pulling as hard as you can away from the Lord. And you are just about to have God let go of the rope on you. And then some of you are in here and like Noah... You're strapping your sandals on every day and you're walking with the Lord. And in the midst of darkness, you are shining like lights in a community that needs to know the truth. So where are you? Which category do you fall in? Now, don't come to me saying, uh, I don't believe anything's going to happen to me. Look, look at the, don't put your stuff up. I ain't done preaching yet. I don't think anything's going to happen to me. That's probably what they said before it started raining. Y'all all right? Let's bow together. Father, speak to hearts in the name of Jesus. Your heads bowed, your eyes are closed. Some of you are here today. You may be a grown man, a teenager, a grown woman. And you know that you don't have a relationship with the Lord and you have been pulling away. But today you want to let go of the rope. You want to come to Christ by faith, believing him. If that's you today, I'm going to encourage you to pray something like this in your heart as I pray it out loud. Just say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. I need your grace. So today I'm turning from my sin. I'm letting go of the rope and I'm running to you by faith. Forgive me, cleanse me, give me a brand new life, and help me to live unashamed of who you are as I begin today walking with you. Now your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. You might be here um, this morning and that's the prayer of your life. You just prayed with me. 
to give your heart to Jesus. Listen, I want to begin praying for you. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you just prayed with me, I want you to look at me for a moment. If you just prayed to receive Jesus, look at me real hard this morning. If that's the prayer of your heart, look at me. It takes me a minute to get all the way through here. Just continue to look. All right, in a moment, we're going to stand to our feet. If that's the prayer of your heart, I'll be down here. We want to pray for you, encourage you along in your walk with Christ. God may be calling you to join this church family. Others came last hour. You may need to come this hour. And Father, we give you the invitation today. We thank you for our time together. Pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts even as we leave here today. And that's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. While we sing, you come this morning. How sweet.